Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. First, just a little bit from my heart, as I watch things happening in our nation, um, in our church, uh, in my family, in other churches with other pastors I talk to, uh, something that I really, really want us uh, to be to be aware of, I guess, more than anything. Uh, so it, it would be no news to you that we live in a very divided culture right now. Like it is polarizing more than any other time. And more than any other time, I've seen that in the church more than any other time in my less than 40 years of living. And I would say anyone else, I see George shaking his head the division and the polarization is in the church as much as it is in the world, it seems like. And I want to encourage you because you're going to talk to folks that go to other churches, you're going to live with, um, you're going to work with. And I want to encourage you right now to encourage unity, to encourage loyalty, to encourage stick it out of right? I want you to encourage people to, hey, stay in the game with your with your pastors, with your leaders. I talk to multiple pastors um, each week and they're all facing the same things as the division in our nation has really crept in and the cancel culture isn't just out there. It's in here. Um, I've received letter after letter the last few months and it's been really tough because I can say just about anything. I've, I've told my wife, I could say Jesus is Lord and people be like, well, what Jesus are you talking about? You know, are, are we talking about the same Jesus? And when you say Lord, what do you mean by Lord? Like, everything's on the table, it seems like, to, to like, what do you really mean? And, and I know as a, as a leader, we have to be really, really careful how we use our words. But I want us also as congregants and just believers to just be aware that there is something in our culture that is not healthy, that is not healthy at all. And it is wrecking havoc on the body of Christ. And we need to stand And the words that we use are spiritual, Right. I'm not going to I'm not going to use words in this house about solidarity because Jesus words are oneness and unity. As believers, we stand in oneness and unity and that's the prayer of Jesus. And I'm praying that it'll be answered, but uh encourage the folks that you're around because here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing people leave churches to go to other church. They're not happy with the way somebody responded to quarantine and COVID or they're not happy with the way they responded to things happening in the culture and um I just want to encourage you. People you talk to Tell them to hang in there, to be loyal, to be faithful, to believe in, to, to, to anticipate the best and to continue to trust and allow people to, again, just process it because their leaders are human, just like your leader is human, okay? And so I just want to encourage you that we don't have to believe the same things except when it comes to this, okay? We don't have to even go uh, out there in the world and, and say the same rhetoric that is very meaningful to us. It, when it's political, because we can we can actually believe different things and still agree on the essentials here and vote for scripture and vote for what we see Jesus standing for. Is that okay? Y'all all right with that? I want to encourage you guys, let's not allow the division to infiltrate our hearts and our lives as well. Uh, and I'm trying to do the same. I'm speaking to myself. Uh, boy, when some stuff really started happening, my brother would send me things and I was like, I was very emotional. Christian smiling and nodding his head. I'm like, what are you doing? And, and boy, that's, we got to be able to, to regulate and to respond with reason and to be able to have conversations that will actually lead to some good 
right? Not what we're seeing right now and not what the media wants us to continue to buy into. Let's advocate for something better, something healthier in our nation. It's dependent upon us, all right? It's dependent upon us to be level-headed in all this and to advocate for that. Amen? You guys okay with that? All right. Got that off my chest. Thank you, guys. Thanks for letting me do that. Well, I am just, um, I'm excited to wrap up our series today. Uh, Yes, Candy, we're going to continue to talk about neighboring, believe it or not. But this one's going to be so good. I'm excited. If you've missed the last couple of weeks, I would encourage you to go back online, listen to the podcast. We started with looking at the great commandment that Jesus would leave for us, that we would love God and then love who? Our neighbor, right? Love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And I'm not even sure, we're going to talk about that language as well today, um, that that may not be the best understanding of how we love our neighbor today in 2020. And today we're going to we're going to land the plane where from week 2 we talked about how you guys smell. We talked about some of y'all um you know we want to smell like Jesus, the aroma of Christ is what we looked at in week 2 and what does that ro- aroma put off and what does it do in the lives of people around us? How do we obtain that aroma? What you know from our worship gatherings here to our time with the Lord um, by ourselves at home to worshiping in the car, the aroma of Christ that that just will automatically be on us and be put off. You can't leave your smells at home. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. You can't even mask them, as we mentioned. You can't just put some Axe body spray, as a lot of the teenagers I've worked with try to do, and they just still smell funky, but just with some Axe on top. We can't do that when it comes to the sin in our life. We can't do it and try to spray a little bit of Jesus and change the language that we use. Um, We're going to smell like what we're around. And if it's Christ, we can't help but smell like him. And then in week three, last week, we looked at... um, we looked at some practical ways of how we can intentionally, talking about those that we live in the immediate vicinity of, pray for, even go on prayer walks and not just drive by, but actually look at with eyes of the Lord and pray for our neighbors because they're all fighting a great battle. Everyone is fighting a great battle. You in your lives, you're, you may be trying to figure out what's next. I've graduated. Well, how do I get into the schools or the jobs? Or, or boy, I'm praying for this person in my family. And we all have things that we are fighting a great battle. Nolan's just glad to be here after going tubing. Uh, he's just, he fought a great battle and I'm assuming you overcame. So, we, you know, we all are fighting a great battle in our lives of what is happening. And some, without the Lord, imagine the battles that you have faced. What those would have been like, without Jesus and the peace that he has brought us. Imagine going through COVID and all this uncertainty and fear and then all the things you see on the news. Imagine going through all that without the Lord. I'm so glad that I don't have to experience that because I can't, I don't want to imagine, but we are surrounded by people, people that the Lord is beginning to work in their lives and has been working in their lives that are fighting these great battles. And he is asking us to, Will we neighbor well? Will we be the aroma of Christ even in our neighborhoods? And so today as we uh, land this plane, I want to pray and I want us to jump straight into some scripture in Romans 13. But would you pray with me first? Father, I just thank you that um, your words are true. And so today, Lord, I ask that we would have ears to hear the words from your scripture, the words from your spirit speaking to our hearts, And that it would come with power to transform the word of God. It says that it divides between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. And I pray, God, that it would divide within us the things that are true. Maybe may we worship you in spirit and in truth and may our life reflect that. 
And so may my words that are just mine fall on deaf ears, but may the seeds of heaven from the scripture be planted upon good soil today and reap a harvest a hundredfold. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So the first scriptures we're going to look at today is Romans 13, 8 through 9. And I hope you, I hope this series has been good for you as we've looked at neighboring. Um, I'm going to challenge you guys today with some, some quotes that I think um, from some theologians around the world that really talk about what we've kind of honed in on, which is what is neighboring? What is hospitality? And I'm not talking about Martha Stewart's and I'm not talking about Betty Crocker or Chef Boyardee or any of those guys that you think of, whatever caliber of hospitality you, you live in, right? For me, it would be more the Chef Boyardee hospitality level. That's kind of, that's where I live. So maybe some hamburger helper every now and then. Um, gosh, Elijah, I don't know what your, your new, your first year of marriage is like, but it was a whole lot of hamburger helper in my first year. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. Lots of sodium <laughs> were in my in my calorie intake. So let's look at Romans 13 before I keep going down these rabbit trails and get myself in trouble. Romans 13, verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding, Paul says, except this. He says, if you're going to walk in debt with someone, then only walk in debt to love one another. If you're going to owe someone something, have you ever said, man, you owe me. You owe, Have you ever heard someone tell you, you owe me? You're like, let no one owe you except this, to love one another. For whoever loves has fulfilled the law. So he said he wraps it all up. He says the commandments of you shall not commit adultery. So the sanctity of marriage he talks about. You shall not murder the sanctity of life he talks about. He says you should not steal. So coveting and taking that which is not yours, he should, you shall not covet. He says in whatever other commands there may be, he said they're all wrapped up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. The problem is, is we read those, we've heard those, we know those, but it's become so common. We've like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, what, what should I really do? <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, go back and do the first things. I think Jesus would be telling us. If he were writing a letter to the church today, I think we would lead, we would look at some of the things that he had written to the churches in Revelation and it wouldn't be much different for us today. He would say, no, 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 no. Just go back and do the things I first told you. You're, you're looking for some new revelation, some new glamorous insight. He's like, but you're not even loving your neighbor. Lo you're not loving anybody. You're not loving your neighbor. Go back and do that first. Do the first things I told you and you'll fulfill all these other things. You'll walk in the revelation and the fullness of what it means to interact with your community. You'll, you'll have the evangelism strategy you need to win the world and, and see Jesus glorified in your, in your life and in your city and in your nation and in the world. You'll fulfill the great commission if you fulfill the great commandments. I believe that. And these verses, they summarize what we've been talking about for the past few weeks. Jesus talking about loving God or loving God and loving our neighbor. You know, there's a lot of notions in the church that Paul is addressing when he writes this in Romans. Some that they had become inwardly focused. And I'd say we could probably even say that about the church in many regards today, that the church has become so inwardly focused. And this was an intentional, uh, you know, series for us because this isn't just, boy, one more good series that we could talk about something and maybe grow a little bit and forget in a few weeks, months. But this is something that is a core value to our faith. This is something that is essential. If we want to talk about non-essential and essential, this is essential 
the great commandment of neighboring and, and not being inwardly focused, but being otherly and outwardly focused. And Paul's addressing a group of people that were mostly about themselves. And Paul wanted to address that. And he says these words, if you're going to have any debt, let it be to love one another. He says, you know the law. And he said, I think for some of us, when we think about loving others as we love ourselves, I don't think in 2020, that really helps us even put it into perspective. Because a lot of us, how many of you, like if I love candy, the way that I love myself it may mean nothing to her, okay? We've, we've got the five love languages. We've got, you know, the Enneagrams. We got, we got all the Myers-Briggs. We got all these ways that I can understand what would be meaningful and valuable to her in the way that I express love. So love isn't as much about the one sending it as much as it is about the one receiving it. And so if I'm going to communicate love and value and admiration, then I need to love her as she wants to be loved. I think that would be a better understanding in 2020 for us to say this, the scripture. I don't want to rewrite the word of God in the greatest commandment, but I think as to say, love your neighbor as you love yourself may not fully entail what Jesus is meaning that we would understand it today to say, but love your neighbor as they would want to be loved, as Nolan would want to experience love, as Tito, as Misha, as Mary would want to be loved express love in a way that will communicate it the way that you intend it to be communicated so that it can be received. Does that make sense? And so let's express love in a way to those around us that's going to communicate that. Not just the way that we want to experience it. That may not mean anything to them. If I get candy another gun, Tom, it's not going to express the love that I thought it would express. Maybe a little bit. You're right. Depends what brand. Sig or Glocks. But if, if I express it though with a massage certificate, if I, that won't mean anything to me. Don't get me one of those. I hate them, right? It, people touch my shoulders. It just hurts. But, it, but for her, oh man, a day to myself, no kids. Are you serious? Say what? You love me? Oh my goodness. I'm out of here, <laughs> right? That express it in a way that it can be received. And so I think we should love our neighbor as they want to be loved. That's fulfilling that command in spirit. And so Paul writes in Galatians 5, for the entire law in verse 14, he says, is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Paul says it again. Love your neighbor as yourself. As you want to be loved, you want to be loved in a way that's meaningful. Love them in a way that is meaningful. And so we've talked about how this is a tenet of our faith and it should also be central to our praxis, to how we live, to our practice. And though it is commonly heard, let's allow it to not push all the things to the side. Could you imagine if we had an outside auditor come in and survey our lives and say, now all the things that you really say, I'm going to be evaluating and see if, if that's actually how you live. And I'm afraid on this one, we would score pretty low. I'm afraid that they would see that we're very individualistic, that we don't live communally, that we really aren't about our neighbors. Candy asked me last night while everybody was shooting fireworks, are you sure you still want to preach about neighboring tomorrow? Because right now I'm not feeling, feeling very neighborly. Babies try to go to sleep. I live in the county just barely, but that means they can shoot their fireworks and I can shoot my guns in the county. Okay. So she was like, right now, 
I'm not feeling like I want to hear that message tomorrow about loving my neighbors because if I hear one more big old firework, because you know they were all spending more money than ever because you couldn't go anywhere to actually see some real ones. So they were firing the biggest ones and they were loud and it sounded like cannons. And I don't mean like, oh, a couple of neighbors down. I mean the yard connected to mine, like literally my neighbor. Boom! Levi's window right beside that. (laughs) And so... Yeah, being a good neighbor. What does that look like on 4th of July or any other holiday or any other interaction, but to love our neighbors? And so if our outside auditor came in, surveyed and evaluated, would they be? Would we be surprised by the outcome? That are we really living for the glory of God and for the sake of our neighbor? Are we really living for the glory of God and the sake of our neighbor? Are we really following the greatest commands or do we just know them and say them and do them as comfortable as we are in the Western way of doing that? And I want us to be challenged to shift our focus back to how we live our lives based on this central tenet of loving God and loving our neighbor. And as we talked about hospitality, I was so glad that we could look at a, a different meaning of that. You remember that it doesn't have anything to do about being a good Southern host and having some good fried chicken and um, you know, Tito, you like fried okra now that you've been in the South a little bit? No, we're going to have to. You do like that lemonade back there. I know you like Mary's lemonade. Fried bananas. Fried bananas. I'll come to your house for that. It's not about Martha Stewart exemplifying biblical hospitality. And, and I'm so glad that biblical hospitality isn't narrowed down to someone who can host well like that. Because then I'm out. Because Candy's nodding her head. Because Sometimes I just don't want to have people all up in my house and I'm, I don't want to necessarily get the ice maker and put it in the bucket. Mary's great at that stuff. But if it's narrowed down to Mary's gifts for all of us, boy, there's a lot of us not going to be included in that. But biblical hospitality is so much more and thankfully so because it doesn't exclude us. If you thrive at that and you knock it out of the park, more power to you. Keep it going. Get in Southern living and whatever else. Uh, but we cheer you on. But we realize that hospitality in the New Testament, the word used there is philoxenia, literally love for a stranger, as we mentioned. And so when we are talking about hospitality, we're not talking about hosting all your friends and family. We're talking about how do you entertain and love strangers? How do you love the other? How do you love the outsider? How do you love someone who looks and lives differently? Even the Samaritan How do you love a stranger? That's hospitality, biblical hospitality. And the love of strangers is what the scripture teaches us. But we are taught right now, fear of strangers. I mean, what do I tell my kids? Stranger, danger. These are the words that we recite to one another. Our culture is, oh, don't be careful who you make eye contact with while you're out there pumping the gas. Just kind of keep your head down. You don't want to start talking. I wasn't raised that way. As a kid, my personality was this. At the restaurant, my head would pop up in that little booth and I'd look over at the person next to me and say, hey, you know me? I assumed everybody wanted to be my friend. Not much has changed. Candy will tell you. I assume everybody wants to be my friend. And as a kid, it was cute. As an adult, not so much. And so I assume still though that everybody wants to be my friend. But but I still, in raising my own kids, I'm like, hey, no, uh uh-uh, don't talk... What do you, they're offering you what? No, especially the ones offering you candy. Do not talk to them. Those are bad news. But as a kid, it was different. And we were allowed to take that sucker from the man in the cowboy boots and the cowboy hat at church, right? Every week he brought that and he gave it to the kids and 
today? Uh uh-uh. uh. Well, you know what could be in that wrapper? Was it unwrapped before? Who knows? Could it, Halloween candy? I ain't even. I, I don't even want to talk about Halloween. I want to talk about who's giving it to you. You don't know them, right? I mean, so we're taught we're taught something so different in our culture when it comes to the stranger. Don't talk to them. But when Jesus taught us, he taught something radically different, a different moral code than this one. He says, if you see a stranger, go and unstranger them. Go and make a friend. Go fix that. Befriend them. And the the biggest thing, I want you to catch this today. All you need to turn a stranger into a friend is a welcome. All you need to turn a stranger into a friend is a welcome. A welcome into your life a welcome into a conversation, a welcome into, hey, you want to go grab some coffee? Hey, can I get you something? I'm going, I'm going by Duncan's on my way in. Just thought of you, you know, you're, you sit in the cubicle next to me, whatever it is, all it is is a welcome to take a stranger to a friend. And all of us have a welcome. You can't welcome people into my home or my space, but you can welcome them into yours. Henry Nouwen says this, Listen to this quote. It's a little long, but I really, really like it. If you don't know Henry Nowen, he's a great spiritual writer, um, a little monastic, but I love some of his, his words. He says this, in our world full of strangers, estranged from their own past, culture and country, from their neighbors, friends and family, from their deepest self and their God, we witness a painful search for a hospitable place where life can be lived without fear and where community can be found. And although many, we might even say most strangers in this world become easily the victim of a fearful hostility. It is possible for men and women and obligatory for Christians to offer an open and hospitable space where strangers can cast off their strangeness and become our fellow human beings. The movement from hostility to hospitality is hard and full of difficulties, he says. He says, our society seems to be increasingly full of fearful, defensive, and aggressive people anxiously clinging to their property and inclined to look at their surrounding world with suspicion. This is how we live, isn't it? We're very suspicious people today. Always expecting an enemy to suddenly appear to intrude and do harm. He says, but still, with all of that being the case in our society today, he says, but still, that is our vocation. That's our job, to convert the hostess into a hospice, the enemy into a guest, and to create the free and fearless space where brotherhood and sisterhood can be formed and fully experienced. Let me say that again. He says, but still with all the suspicion, the fear, the things that we experience, and this couldn't be more true, even though this was written decades ago, this couldn't be more true today with the way our culture is. But that is still our vocation, our job to love the stranger, to make that our vocation, to convert the hostess into a hospice, the enemy into a guest. And yeah, we're, we're taught xenophobia, the fear of strangers instead and possibly more divided than ever. Possibly even more suspicion and more risk, right? If I talk to the stranger, 
we were walking through yesterday, uh, went to get ice cream with my sister who was in uh, from Colorado and we went to Cruz Farm and we're walking through uh, the the Crutch Park and over to Market Square and it, it's dead, right? There's no one down there. There's nothing going on downtown on the 4th of July for once. And the officers that we noticed were intentionally out of their cars and just talking to people. Because right now there is such a hostility in our nation towards just everybody. I mean, Joyce came in and she was afraid even uh, her shirt would offend someone because maybe you don't like watermelons or maybe you don't, you know, right now we look to be offended. We look for hostility. We look to put our dukes up, right? Versus to embrace and to love. We're looking through the wrong lens and, and I could see why these officers were out because they're trying to break down some barriers that, hey, I'm human too. I'm good. I, not all of them are what you see on TV and but they're having to work hard at that. And then I have to break down some barriers. And so on our way home, we drove down Martin Luther King because I wanted to see the painting that was going on in front of uh, in front of Austin East High School. And, uh, and, you know, not to be political about it, but I want to embrace what's happening. I want to love the other. I want to, I, I'm, I'm for the arts and expressing yourself in a way that we can do that is healthy and recognizes communities. And that we don't have to be the same, but I can understand and appreciate and value with you. And he said, right now, there's so much suspicion. What do you really mean by that? What is that officer's intentions? What? And we, we have to catch people off guard with love. We have to catch people off guard with acceptance because they're expecting something radically different right now. They are expecting you not to be a neighbor, but to be a foe. They're looking for it. Forget social media. I'm just talking about natural interactions. They're definitely expecting that on social media for you to put something out there that is this, right? That we can hide behind. Our stance. What if we drop the gloves and we wrap our arms around in everything that we do? Our motives will be questioned absolutely for everything we do. And listen to what is key to overcoming the suspicion that we are all going to face in neighboring. The key to converting folks today from stranger into friend is, drum roll, brrr, sustained kindness. Sustained kindness. Not just one act of kindness, but sustained, ongoing, commitment to, intentional kindness. In a world full of suspicion, it will take continual proof Continual proof that your love is real, that it's genuine to break through the barriers. It will take ongoing kindness, sustained kindness. And given that the world that we live in, I mean, why wouldn't they be suspicious? Why would we love them? Because we live near them? Because we shop at their store? I mean, why really would we love someone that is a stranger? Why wouldn't they be suspicious? So we've got a job to do. But know this, that sustained kindness is the forerunner to love. Sustained kindness lays the tracks, paves the road to love. And we're going to talk about what that looks like because I'm really excited to share this. So kindness is going to pave the way for love to be expressed. And with each act of kindness, we're going to lay those tracks so that they can understand the love of God that we desire to express to them. And so I want to distinguish two ideas that oftentimes get muddled together, and that's kindness and goodness. Kindness 
and goodness. And Paul writes about both of these. They're both fruits of the Spirit, but they're individual fruits. They're different. Kindness is different than goodness. Kindness is strategic. Kindness is intentional. It is direct. It is specific. It's faithful. It is sustained. It's persistence. And the scripture even says it leads to what? Repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads us to transformation, to a change of thinking. Imagine if your kindness could break down some barriers and literally transform metanoia, the the repentance, a change of someone's mind. That's what kindness does. So right now, someone has something in their mind about the stranger, about you, you're their stranger and they're your stranger, but sustained kindness can transform that. That's the scripture. So I mentioned uh, Rosaria Butterfield um, on our very first week, and I mentioned a, a book that she has out about hospitality called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And she is so passionate about this topic because she was so diametrically opposed to Christianity. Professor, a very liberal professor, a practicing lesbian, hostile towards Christians until she started doing her research. And she writes this in one of her books, and I printed out a couple of pages from it. She's in Syracuse, New York. And she says this, she says, going to dinner at the home of Christians, it was not high on my list of longed for activities. As an out lesbian feminist, a leader in the LGBTQ, the whole alphabet writes, she says the recent co-author of the first domestic partnership policy at Syracuse University and soon to be tenured radical, my heart's desire was not to become friends with the enemy. And Christians seem like a small-minded, uncharitable, immoral bunch. Listen to her story, though. And I believe that the whole world should somehow fall under their totalitarian obedience to the Bible, an ancient book fraught with racism, sexism, and homophobia. This was her original view of Christianity, not too far from those that we encounter today. Let's be honest. And so I sat there in, in my truck, in the driveway of this Christian home, musing about the book that I was writing on the religious right and their policies, practices, and narratives of hatred against people like me. To do this, I knew that I had to read the Bible, and I also knew that I needed to, to, to know someone and to get inside the head of a true believer. I believe that only a wacko or an idiot would believe those things, that they were more relevant and, and real than the kindness, charity, and good practices and the open-mindedness and personal experience reflected in my community. But I was also a serious scholar, an English professor by training and practice, and I always told my students that they earned the right to critique only by reading the enemy's books. And if you haven't read it, you have no right to interpret it. She said, we must take the risk of being wrong. We must take the risk of reading things that offend it is necessary to be this kind of scholar of integrity in order to confront the opposition with respect. And so she ends up, she, I'm going to fast forward. She says, but this nice Christian who invited me to dinner intrigued me. The pastor, Ken Smith, wrote to me regarding an op-ed that I had published in the Syracuse Post Standard. In it, I opposed the Christian men's movement promise keepers from their backward and misogynistic gender politics and their threat, and their threat against democracy. I've always had a real, uh, I've always read all of my hate mail. Call, uh, call me a, a masochist if you want. She said, but I came to the conclusion that Ken's letters of opposition were the kindest ones I had ever received. The kindest opposition. 
She said, I also like the fact that Ken had the right pedigree to help me with my research. He was a pastor. And when Ken and his wife, Floyd, invited me to dinner, I said, yes. And my motives were clear. Surely this would be good for my research. And I considered Ken Smith my potential unpaid research assistant. But the task at hand was daunting. And that is why I sat in my truck so long, not quite ready to knock on the front door of this house and walk across this threshold. Somehow I would have to emerge from this meal, understanding the oppressive logic that elevated a dead book above the desires of good people. I'll fast forward. I breathed hard, hoisted myself out of my truck, nursing a tender hamstring for my morning run, and I waded through the unusually thick July humidity to the front door, and I knocked. The threshold to their life was like none other. The threshold to their life brought me to the foot of the cross. Nothing about that night unfolded according to my confident script. Nothing happened in the way I expected. Not that night or the years after or the hundreds of meals or the long nights of psalm singing and prayer as other believers from their church and university walked through the door of this house as if no door was there. Nothing prepared me for the op- for this openness and truth. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and for the love of Jesus made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality undertaken in this one simple Christian home. This Christian home became my two-year refuge and way station. Long before I ever walked through the doors of the church, the Smith home was the place where I wrestled with the Bible and with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is. Amen. And so it's her story. She goes on and continues to write in her reflections in this book. She says, they didn't once flinch or scoff at my foul mouth. They didn't once hide the kids and get them to scurry off when I was talking about things that were inappropriate. They didn't once, when they found out that I was vegan, everyone at that house when I was present ate vegan. That's hospitality. And when they found out that I was appalled at the overuse of power consumption, when they turned, guess what? When I came over, they turned off the HVAC system and only ran fans because she was our guest. That's hospitality. I'm challenged by Ken Smith in this pasture. And this was, have, this was happening over a course of years while all of this professor's friends, Rosario's um, students even, would, would jeer and scoff and make fun of the Smiths and how wild, wildly irrelevant they were. But their sustained kindness, their sustained hospitality to a stranger, it brought her to the foot of the cross and it brought her to repentance. She actually believed them against all the backdrops of their differences because they accommodated, they were patient, they were kind, they were charitable. And when they said these words that we love you, they believed her. They believed her. Like she believed them. When they said, we love you, Rosario, it had already been paved on the tracks of sustained kindness that those words were true. Look at what they've done to already show me that. Why would I have any reason to be suspicious? Was it not for kindness, sustained kindness, she never would have. It was that kindness to allow her to accept and believe 
their love for her, and ultimately their kindness that would lead to that repentance. Theolo- uh, theologian uh, Miroslav Volf says this. He is a Croatian theologian. I told you I was going to quote one European for you, Tito. And he says this. He says, our society is marked by a persistent practice of exclusion. We see that, don't we? Our society is marked by a persistent practice of excluding one another. But the way of Jesus is radically different. An actual Christian worldview, I would say, sees two different things. Those that are part of the family and those we hope to welcome into the family. It's about family and including and and hoping that those will be welcomed into this family. It's not about exclusion, the way of Christ in a Christian worldview. And they challenge pastors to summarize the ministry of Jesus in one sentence. And one pastor summarized it this way. He said, all of the ministry of Jesus, he said, I could summarize it with these words. God creating an environment of welcome to change the identity of outsiders to insiders. God creating an environment of welcome to change the identity of outsiders to insiders. Isn't that what he's done for us? We were once on the outside and he has included us. And if you're still on the outside, today's the day to become a part of the family and be on the inside. Joshua Jip, he's a professor at uh, Trinity Evangelical in Illinois. He says this, he says, divine hospitality to the stranger and the sinner. This is what the gospel was all about. Divine hospitality to the stranger and the sinner. So think about that. The greatest example of hospitality that we have is God himself becoming a stranger and wrapping himself in something that he never was wrapped in before, flesh, and entering our world and becoming like one of us, that he could welcome us. That is hospitality of divine nature. In cultural Christianity, unfortunately within Christianity, we tend to make heroes out of the ones that have the microphones or maybe on an instrument. We tend to, we want to, we want to have heroes. And we've done it within Christianity too. And what's happened though, as a result of having a hero who maybe is up front and on a stage, is that those who serve behind the scenes are exhibiting a gift that is less than. And that couldn't be furthest from the truth. Because regardless of what part of the stage you're on or a seat out there, we are all called to love God and to love our neighbor. We're all called to the ministry of hospitality, of loving strangers, of including those that are on the outside. And Jesus, he didn't have a problem with preaching. I would say, I don't think any of us would say that he had, he had trouble with delivering good messages. I'd say he did a great job at that. But he was still constantly hosting and making friends of strangers. In fact, he was ridiculed. He's like, are you, are you kidding me? You're going to include those people? No, 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 no. We exclude that. Remember, remember Jesus? Let's, let's be culturally relevant. That's not culturally relevant to include them. They shouldn't be at the table with you. That's unclean. They are sinners. Do you know what she was doing last night, Jesus? If you are truly the son of God, come on now. But he included. He included. And Paul, I don't think Paul struggled with delivering great messages. I think Paul, probably being one of the greatest church planners that ever existed, listen to these final words. Oh man, this is really fascinating as I was studying this week. Never noticed this. The last two verses in Acts, read this, Acts 28, 
verse 30. It says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. But verse 30, leave that up there, verse 30. For two whole years, one of the greatest church planters, this could be Paul's house arrest, we believe in Rome. But in this house, what does he do? He could, have, he could have been going around, still playing church, still discipling. But what does he do? He practices hospitality nonstop, 24-7. He's got an open door. Boom. He's just practicing hospitality. Have you ever seen that before? That that was what Paul spent his last days doing? Was just having an open door, practicing hospitality. I've been around a few people, I would say a handful, that have practiced what I just read to you guys well. They're few and far between in my life that have practice that open door of just welcoming strangers and entertaining and, and true biblical hospitality. I remember Paul Cow, who used to, who was the one who founded Whitestone Inn. What a man who practiced hospitality. He used to do that in his own home before he started it. What a, a, a gentleman that I see. I think of Rick Bradbury. Um, I knew his son better than I knew him. But he, he had told me just a couple, I heard him say it a couple of weeks ago, he's had over 340 something people, strangers in his home. Some older, some teenagers, some that were in DCS custody, some that weren't because he's practiced biblical hospitality. He's practiced what I just read to you. He welcomed all who came to see him. This is still our best way in a suspicious and hostile culture to see God's kingdoms come to our communities, that we would offer kindness, sustained kindness, to lay the tracks for love to come in. We're talking about hospitality. I'm talking about a love of strangers. Alan Hirsch, he says this, if every Christian family in the world simply offered good conversational hospitality around the table once a week to neighbors, we could eat our way into the kingdom. If every Christian family in the world simply offered good conversational hospitality around the table once a week, he says we could eat our way into the kingdom. And I believe him. If we practice that and welcomed strangers, even just once a week, how many professing Christians we have that would practice that? If I would practice that, what would my neighborhood look like? What would my life look like? I, my family has been challenged before with opening our home to strangers. We have a comfort zone now to foster care, as uncomfortable as it is. But this is a different scenario for me to open my home to families, to people I don't know, maybe even people that live right next door that can go back to their house, but to welcome them to a table, a seat of equality and mutuality, of respect, and to allow the aroma of Christ in our conversations to bring them in through sustained kindness that they would see the love of God in a real way. Rosaria Butterfield, I'll give you one more quote from her. And Bruce, if you don't mind coming up as I'm reading this. Those that live out radically, she says, ordinary hospitality, see their homes, not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of the kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. Do we seek out the underprivileged? Do we open doors? Do we further the kingdom? Because we understand 
that God has called us to biblical hospitality and that the gospel comes with a house key. That where he's placed us is divine and what he has entrusted to us, we are called to be good stewards of. Not just the finances that we drop in the back of the bucket, but our lives we share. This is loving our neighbor. This is hospitality. I want to read that quote one more time from Henry Nouwen. The movement from hospitality, from, I'm sorry, hostility to hospitality is hard and it will be full of difficulties. You and I both know that, but our society seems to be increasingly full of fearful, defensive, aggressive people anxiously clinging to their property, maybe even the property of our ideas, I would say, and inclined to look at their surrounding world with suspicion, always expecting an enemy to suddenly appear, intrude and do harm. But he says, and I say it with him, but still that is our vocation to convert the hostess into a hospice, the enemy into a guest and to create the free and fearless space where brotherhood and sisterhood can be formed and fully experienced. That's our job to literally convert the stranger into a friend and all that is needed is a welcome and to bring them into our family, the family of God. Isn't that what would exist for? Isn't that what we're all a part of? Isn't that really what it all boils down to? Is to see those who are far from God be brought near, that they would experience the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance and that they would experience it, that they would know that what that we're his disciples because of what? Our love for one another. That as the examples lay the track that they could accept and say that love is real as suspicious as I may be of other people and what their motive, I can't help but deny what I see in front of me. The the summary of all that Jesus did, I love to read this, Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. He literally came to make enemies and strangers friends and family. That is literally, that's what Jesus came to do. He came in divine hospitality to welcome us as outsiders. And, and listen to these words in Romans 5, 6 through 11. It says this, verse 6. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for even an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still strangers, sinners of the worst kind. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. He has made us friends of God. He has welcomed us. He has invited us. We were outsiders of the worst kind and he has brought us into his family. He has made us insiders. He has welcomed us and he welcomed us even to the point of death that we could be hospitality to the point of death that we could be brought in. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm challenged today by the example of Christ and the scriptures that we've read and the, the stories of, of sustained kindness where, Lord, it has, it has shown us that it would revolutionize people's lives, that that's what changed my life was your kindness, God. It's what brought me to my knees, that, Lord, I wanted 
what I saw other people had and I knew I didn't have it. I remember the place, Lord, where I saw it and I, I could taste it. It was so tangible. I could feel it. Lord, I pray that you would use us in those same ways, that people could smell the aroma of Christ on us, that through our sustained kindness with strangers that we could invite and include and, and practice, God, literally what you've called us to do, to love you and to love others. Lord, I thank you that you have made us family. And in this place, if you would say, Michael, there are those, maybe even you yourself would say, or those that you know that God has put in your life for a reason, that God has put positioned where you live for a purpose, that God has put you in a place where you work for a purpose. And you'd say, Michael, I know I'm in their life for a reason. And I'm ready to take those next steps of sustained kindness, of, of exemplifying the kingdom of God, of being Jesus to them. If you just recognize that with me this morning, would you just raise your hand? I want to pray with you that God will give you the spirit of Christ to show him to your neighbors, to your coworkers. Is there anybody, anybody at all that you recognize people specifically? Yeah, yes. My hand's raised too. Even the ones shooting fireworks when I wish they wouldn't. Lord, right now, I just pray because I believe in this place that there are people that we work with, there are family members, there are people in our lives that you have divinely placed us. It is no accident that you have given us a key to where we live, whether it's an apartment that we thought we were just renting or a house that we are just sharing. But God, there is no accident in all of this. Lord, I pray that you would begin to open our eyes and open doors for us to be able to speak and to live and to act as Jesus would in their worlds. Pray that you would give us the Spirit's unction and power to be neighbors in a way that would reverse the suspicion of our day, that would not succumb to the spirit of this age, but would display the spirit of God in such a way that the fruit is tangible and can be tasted, that they would taste of love, joy, peace, kindness, and goodness. And they would see that you are good, that your goodness would come into their lives, Lord. We sure do love you, Jesus. We thank you for your love for us. In your name, I pray. Amen and amen. If there's anything at all that we can pray with you about, I'll stay up here for a few minutes. Uh, we love you guys. Stay safe. Stay sane. Keep sharing the love of Jesus. Amen. Amen.